You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 177 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Laurie Norris, and with me today are Katie Grubbs and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Hello, Katie and Victoria. Hi. Hello. Okay, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Katie, you go first. Okay. I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in Alabama, just outside Birmingham, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our four children. I am... A full-time mom and a part-time college professor. I teach online for uh, now Houston Christian University, formerly Houston Babgo. So that is the new name of my employer. Didn't interrupt your paychecks. Uh, no, it, apparently it's been in the works for years. It's been a pretty intense exploratory committee for the past 18 months. But I guess if, if you're not full-time, you don't necessarily get all those memos. So it was a shock to me, but nobody else was surprised. So I think they maybe just could have done better communicating to all the part-timers that all of this was going down. But it's fine. It does more accurately reflect the student body and the faculty. So I'm okay with it. Well, that's good. Yeah. Victoria, reintroduce yourselves to people who have never, ever experienced your, your beautiful voice before. Thanks, Lori. Uh, hi, everybody. I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am one of the founders of the Christian Feminist Podcast, uh, along with these two wonderful ladies. And uh, I have a PhD in Renaissance Lit and Gender Studies from Florida State University. And currently, I work as a community engagement manager for a market research firm uh, that specializes in agriculture. So I know lots of things about like weird potato rot and next level research in veterinary tranquilizers that I didn't know a year and a half ago. Uh, but awesome. for, for fun, I write about gender and culture and embodiment, uh, lots of places, and I do this podcast and that's me. That's beautiful. Just like you. I'm, I'm, I have to give everybody a little bit of a warning. I'm in a weird sort of Leslie nope, throw out the compliments mode right now. Um, I think it's because I just had my, my really nice sleepy time tea and um, it has this counterbalancing effect of like making me happy, which is weird. I'm sorry, world. Also, hi, I'm Laurie. Um, I live in Athens, Georgia, where I pretend to be a doctoral student, but am really passionate about labor organizing at the University of Georgia. And I am also an aunt, a very professional one, the best ever, according to a t-shirt that I was gifted. So that is my terrible segue into what we're going to be talking about today. Thank you. All right. So... Aunties. There are a lot of different types and images of aunties in, in a lot of different cultures, but what does being an auntie imply to y'all? Like, Katie, you've got kids, but me and Victoria, we're holding it down as the um, childless women with lots of children in our lives. So I'm going to let uh, Vigo first. Hey, um, yes. I am an aunt. I do not think I am as professional um, as Laurie is. I do not own that t-shirt. Uh, so not that any of my nieces and nephew listen to this, but if they did, uh, that t-shirt would be cool, guys. Uh, so what does it mean to be an aunt? Um, I have four nieces and a nephew ranging in age from 16 to 6. Um, I also have an 8-month-old goddaughter, um, who I think is relevant to this discussion as she is a child that I pour lots of energy into. Um, 
I, I think that being an aunt is interesting, particularly in Christian circles, because I think even though um, gender roles, even in Christian circles, have widened, um, there is this idea that still exists that um, being a wife and then being a mother are like the ways that you achieve complete adult womanhood. So I, I do think that there is um, a, a little bit of an incompleteness, a little bit of a social stigma around just being an aunt. Uh, I, I do think it's better than it used to be. I mean, we can we can talk about the kind of maiden aunt as prudish moral arbiter uh, old stereotype. I'm sure we'll touch on that um, in talking about the article that Laurie gave us for today. But um, I love being an aunt. I, I think that all the kids that I have been an aunt or otherwise important adult figure to um, are important to me and also um, give a lot back to me because I do have a deep need to expend maternal energy, um, even though I'm not going to have children of my own. So, um, yeah, interesting liminal social space that is kind of stigmatized, but also, I think, can do a lot of good in the world. I agree with you on a lot of that stuff, and I am now, instead of just talking about me, which is what I really want to do all the time, I am going to turn to the beautiful land mermaid known as Katie. What is your perspective on being an aunt, knowing that you have children of your own, but are also an aunt to quite a few kids? Um... It is interesting. I was kind of thinking it through this afternoon because we have, and I, I have to now, I, I didn't do this before, and I'm trying to add in my head. Um, on my side, with my siblings, I have um, two nieces and a nephew on that side um, and a dog nephew, um, <laughs> my sister's dog. And then um, on the other side, on David's side, we have six nieces and nephews on that side. I think that's right. Uh, no, no, we have a new one because David's youngest brother had his first baby about six weeks ago. So, um, and I got to hold him and it was super sweet. Um, so Yay. I know he's so, he's so cute. He's so little. Um, but uh, we, uh, it, it, I mean, I don't get, to, I don't get to spend as much time with my nieces and nephews as I would want to partially because, um, like my, all of the ones that are in my family, they all live in Georgia. So they're at least a two hour drive away. Um, but also because I have my own kids. And so it's tough because even though I have a lot of love for all of them, I don't necessarily have a lot of time. But I, w I, I was thinking about it earlier today, what we were going to talk about tonight, and I, I did actually realize that I think I got to do the childless aunt thing actually when I was younger, but with our much younger siblings. Oh. Because my, um, my youngest brother is 14 years younger than I am. And David's youngest brother and sister are like – close to the same like um 13 i think jonathan's 13 years younger than i am pamela is maybe like 11 years younger than i am so you know we i got to do before david and i had kids and especially before we moved away um i got to do all the stuff a lot of the stuff that an aunt would do and even before david and i ever met with tucker you know when he was smaller because we i would you know we would read the same he and i when he was like young like a like a preteen we would read the same ya series and then we would go see the movies together like um, I was the I was the the much more cooler headed chaperone in the car when they were learning to drive sometimes because they like my sister especially would get really stressed out with my mom or dad driving and I would but she was fine with me like um, you know I was the one who took David's sister Pamela to buy a dress for our wedding because her mom thought that I could help her pick out something younger because I was young. <laughs> Like, so I got to do a lot of that stuff and kind of do that almost, as, I guess, like as a phase um, when I was younger and they were younger now, right? They're all in their mid twenties to late twenties. And so um, they don't necessarily need me to be that for them anymore. And now I have like actual nieces and nephews um, who regrettably I don't get to spend quite the same amount of time with just because we have our own kids. But I do still love to um, to watch them develop. We love the time that we do get to spend with them and watching their personalities grow. And it's really fun to watch my kids play with them and become close to their, their cousins and things like that. So I definitely think it's been um, it's been a cool experience to kind of get to do that twice, I guess, but in, in two really different ways. That's awesome, Katie. And 
thank you for sharing that because it, it made me think about my own experiences. Um, I know you and I have talked about this a lot off air before, but um, I have a brother who's 15 years older than me, um, similar to um, the age difference between you and your youngest brother. And it's been really cool for me now that my um, brother has kids of his own. Um, I have a, a niece who's 16 and a nephew who's 13. And now that they're getting older, um, I can kind of be an extra adult to them the way that my brother was to me um, in, in ways that you were describing. So I, I didn't think about reflecting on that for this conversation, but uh, cool. Thanks for reminding me of that angle. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is it was interesting to me too when I had cuz when I had my first kid, my brother was 14. Right? So I was 14 when he was born. He was 14 when my oldest child was born. So it was kind of interesting watching him go through getting a a, a new baby in the family at the same age that I was. It just wasn't his sibling, you know. It was kind of fun. This is amazing for me because I have kind of a different take on on auntiness than than this mostly because my sister and I are only like 18 months apart. Except when she was born, she was already 40 years old. So she was in charge um, and has been the mom in every situation of our entire lives. And I have always been the um, the unreliable uh, juvenile one. And so, like, when she started having kids, um, and the first one came out and he looked just like me. And so instantly we bonded. Like, I would... My sort of childish nature, I think, is what endeared me to the kids, and that was a very useful thing. So, like, they have other aunts and other, like, uncles and stuff, but I'm the only one who's got really bad taste in men and so has not procreated because when you're, when you say you have a dirtbag-based sexuality, that's not really built for stability and security, right? Um, it's built for having a really nice time and then moving on. So you have a lot of time to play blocks of floor with babies. And those babies love that because all the other adults want them to do stuff. And I'm willing to, you know, see how high we can build it and then destroy it or to paint with them. So I think my kind of childish my juvenilia in response to my my sister has let me be oh, I hate the phrase cool aunt but I'm like cool aunt because I could like play with the kids when so many of the other adults wanted to parent them I get that I think I think that makes sense I think that and I and I really like that Laurie because I think often that's something that people are like encouraging like uncles like yeah. having fun with kids on their level so I really appreciate it in an aunt because a lot of times I, I never thought about that till you said it but a lot of times I think what social scripts there are for these relationships it's it's considered uncle territory to like have fun and aunt territory to like be nurturing or mothering or whatever so I really like that I like that that's kind of that you're that you're occupying that space for your nieces and nephews well, I mean, that's kind of sort of my own gender expression is I'm, I'm cis, I'm a cisgender woman. I'm born in the body I was meant to be, but everyone else is wrong in expecting me to act like a lady, you know? So, um, I think I take advantage of, of that liminal space, not just as an aunt, you know, like, like Victoria, like you were saying, but like that liminal space in gender roles to, to do frankly, whatever I want, whenever I want. Um, but that has given me uh, an interesting in with my sister's kids and who she tells me I am collectively all their favorite person, which does introduce fights sometime um, in, in their house about who gets me and um, who gets to claim Auntie Laurie. Uh, so that's really, really good for the ego, y'all. I bet. Yeah. I don't think I'm anybody's favorite aunt, <laughs> but because we're not around them a lot. One of our one of our uh, nieces did cop tell David that that he was her favorite uncle, but you know they talk about old monster movies together. So what else is she gonna say, right? Right. Okay, here's a question. So this is this kind of ties. I want to tie this personal view thing into a discussion of like stereotypes, like the kinds of thoughts that 
culture tells us about or told us about them. So I have this very vivid memory of when my first nibbling was born. I started having nightmares about like him drowning in a pool because suddenly, oh God, I might be responsible for him. What? He might drown in a pool. And I thought to myself, do my aunts have this kind of fear? When, because my mom's got a lot of sisters. My dad's got a lot of brothers. And was this kind of sudden protectiveness, this sort of desperate desire to keep them alive at all costs, something that my aunts felt? It's kind of like, wait, did they love me like this too? Now I feel bad. Like, I owe them a call. Did you guys ever have that, uh, maybe not that exact memory, because I doubt you're dreaming about, you know, well, maybe you, Katie, about, uh, you know, dead baby jokes and stuff. But did you, did you ever have a kind of moment where your personal experience of becoming an aunt changed the way that you thought about ants? First of all, how dare you? I am queen of all anxiety dreams. I have <laughs> all of them. <laughs> um, no, no, I have not had that specific one. Um, I, I don't know. I certainly it changed when we moved back to Georgia and we're closer to Michael's family. And now we're like 30, 40 minutes away from his sister and her two daughters um, who are amazing and also like completely opposite personalities um so i i do have a different set of emotions now that we live close enough to some of our nieces to you know see them regularly and and that kind of thing um they call me auntie v it's the best but i don't know i i guess my my relationship to aunthood is mostly framed around um, what kind of adulthood do I want to model, particularly given that when we're hanging out with other adults in our family um, and conversation does drift to people caring for their children, as it often does when you're on vacation or at an event with married adults, how do I... Um, either contribute to that conversation or let that conversation center on an identity that does not include me comfortably. So I, I try to be sensitive about that and, and listen actively and, um, you know, make, make sure that I'm secure in my own emotions around not having kids when situations like that come up. And that's kind of how the reframing has happened for me. Are there um, any of those old stereotypes about, you know, that you're, that you find yourself consciously pushing up against, um, the, of, you know, of the childless woman, of the old spinster? I mean, it helps that you're married and not Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would say not, not really so much and partly because I am married, um, though, um, I guess my my, I don't even know what to call these people. The, my friends who are the parents of my goddaughter, um, made it a point to wish me happy Mother's Day, um, this year, even though it was my friend's actual first Mother's Day, um, because she knows that it's a really tough day for me, and they're also teaching, um, their daughter, my goddaughter, Frankie, the cutest, smartest, best baby that has ever been born in the world, um, <laughs> to call me Mama V, uh, which I still can't. That was debuted last week, the last time we talked to them, and I still can't, like, think about it without crying. Um, That's so sweet. I know. I love it so much. Um, and they're doing that because they know it's a sensitive area for me. So, I don't know. I'm talking too much right now, but... Mostly not because I think being married gives me like a social cushion that um, unmarried childless women maybe don't have. But um, there are situations in my life where, you know, that motherhood thing is being handled very carefully. And I appreciate uh, the care that these friends are, are showing to me by doing that. I'm going to call them your god siblings and then say that they 
They sound like spectacular humans. Yeah, they really they, do. They are amazing people. And there Shout should out. be a word for that, too. There like, should. There should. I'm gonna. We're gonna have that conversation Thanksgiving when I when I come to visit Emily. If you're listening to this, let's figure something out. Um, Laurie, I did have the that intense anxiety thing. Yeah. When Tucker was born. <gasps> um, my mom was like in her mid 30s, and he was her fourth kid, and she was like not whatevs about it, but I mean, she was. But I was the one who would go. I would go stand over his like crib sometimes and like make sure he was breathing. Yes. Like I would get really freaked out and I, I didn't do it. And then I did it again with my own baby. I mean, when I had Arden, I did the same thing with Arden. Um, but I didn't do it with my own nieces and nephews, but I think that's because I wasn't necessarily around them when they were tiny and seemed at their most helpless. <laughs> like, yeah. and by the time I, by the time I, the only ones, um, the only nieces and nephews we have that predate, um, my kids, my, me having any kids is, um, David's sister, Melissa, her, um, her sons, Ian and McKinley, um, when she and their dad got married, they were like three and five. So by the time I showed up on the scene, they were older. They weren't little babies. They didn't seem super vulnerable or anything like that. So I don't remember having anxiety around them either. Um, but I, you know, I do, I do think it's, um, but I, I will, I did have a really weird moment. We went to this, my whole family on my side, mom, dad, me, my brothers and sisters, and then Billy's kids. Cause he's the only other one who has kids yet. We all went to the beach, stayed in the same house. <laughs> in a summer 2020 because it was like a house like off by itself right because we were trying to like not be around people because the yeah. pandemic but um my brother's third child wesley uh she's a baby girl she was like four weeks old and i just spent so much of that week just holding her as a newborn and it, weirdly i feel more connected to her and her mom's her mom knows this or i wouldn't say this like on a podcast but um i, I he has three kids and she's the youngest one. And she was the first one I remember feeling that, that like more intense connection with, but I truly think it's because she's the only one that I was, I happened to be around when she was a newborn and had the chance to like hold her when she was really small and seemed really helpless. And, you know, by the time I met the other two, they were older, like months older. And so I do think there's something about knowing that being able to be around your niece or nephew or whatever from when they're super, super tiny that can give you more of that anxiety or maybe more connection or whatever. Like, I think it can change things versus if you don't meet them till they're a bigger kid or, you know, because we've always lived far away till now, just not be really being around them at all more than like three times a year. So um, that was, that took me very much by surprise that I did not expect to feel that connected to her when she was just a tiny baby and wasn't even really showing flashes of personality yet. But I think it's because she was a tiny baby. And those gigantic eyes that say, don't eat me. Look how cute I am. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's, 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 very, it's very powerful. And I, I do think, too, that um, I, I think that you guys are right about the stereotypes being different depending on what category you're in. Like, and, and also what experience you've had with ants. Like, I, I think I was surprised by feeling really connected to Wesley in part because I don't know that I have expected growing up to feel super close to my nieces and nephews because I wasn't close with my aunts like at all mm. um i mean they you know they're fine but we we didn't spend a ton of time with our extended extended family when i was a kid so the women who i remember being closer to me actually knowing more about my life spending more time with me were my mom's bffs they weren't none of them were my actual aunts and so i didn't necessarily expect that when i when even once i was grown and started having my own kids i didn't necessarily expect to feel i loved my nieces and nephews but i didn't expect to feel that more that deeper connection which is why it took me by surprise when i started when i felt that more that way about my brother's youngest i think that's really interesting because i'm sort of noticing something similar with with my friends um uh one couple they have a son and um as i am auntie laurie and he has always known me as auntie laurie i met him as a was baby, and now he's he's a full grown six or seven year old. Oh, time is meaningless. And uh, he, the first time he called me Auntie Laurie, like my heart broke because he yelled it, Auntie Laurie, come back! Because I went to the bathroom while we were baking a cake. Um, but we've had discussions about how all of the friends are are aunties. Even even our friend Joshua is Auntie Joshua because. Joshua's got some real powerful anti-energy and not like Uncle Joshua energy. But uh, this kid is being raised with a ton of non-biological, traditional family kind of aunties. And I think that's interesting. There's this BBC article that came out about a year 
year ago um, called uh, Aunt with No Kids, The Women Redefining Family Roles. And it starts talking about, well, frankly, me as a demographic, um, women who for whatever reason don't, who find themselves childless, um, sometimes single, but still really love having like kids in their lives because I don't hate babies. Like babies aren't my favorite because I mean, while they do bounce, they're kind of boring. But once a kid's got a personality, it's awesome to play with kids, right? So this article is sort of talking about this growing acceptance of um, women without children and the maternal kind of role that they play and even the lack of language that we have about it. But it's it comes a lot to that cliche of it takes a village to raise a, a child. And, and I think this thing that we're noticing of friend kinship bringing in auntiness and, and not just strictly limiting it to who we're related to by family and, and marriage. I think it's, I think that's really cool. And I, and it definitely for me puts in its head that spinster image of, you know, I just keep thinking of the ants and um, arsenic and old lace, probably because if I'm going to be a spinster, I'm going to be a murderous one with the best of intentions. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a great play. I keep thinking of um, the the line from "Baby, It's Cold Outside." Uh, <laughs> my maiden aunt will start to worry. Oh, I forgot that line. Oh man, you're right. I mean, I would. I did have a moment where I worried about object permanence with kids because, like, when when the eldest nibbling was like two, two and a half, I shaved my head. And, and he'd previously only seen me with, like, long hair. And I was like, oh, God, is he going to recognize me? And so we're sitting on the couch next to each other, and he quietly tells me he likes my hair. And I, I learned a lot about child psychology, but I realized I will worry. Every day of their lives, I will worry while I play blocks with them. See, and I really, I, I appreciate, Laurie, too, that you made the point that or, that you were talking about being a person who um is not anti-child because i think a lot of times and i think this is more common with like gen z but i i think i i i've kind of heard so many young people talk about not wanting to have their own kids perfectly valid choice but also just like not even really liking to be around them like being kind of like eh, like what's the big deal like you know or like icked out by the whole thing like just not really wanting to have anything to do with kids so I really appreciate all the people in my kids lives who aren't David and me or in any way blood related to us and who still would like to spend time with our children <laughs> like you guys yeah. because you know I, I think it's important for them to have those non-related uh, relationships and I think there's value in in having having those I mean because really relational friendship just with a little child right? Like, and percent, yeah. yeah, yeah. And cross friendships are important for everybody. So I, I really, I, I don't know. I don't understand people who are like, I don't care too much about like being around any children ever. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's just interesting. So I really appreciate that the, the, the aunties who are, are want to be in it and, and spend time and, um, and not because they're obligated because you're related to these children, because you truly enjoy spending time and you know, that that's something that you want to invest in them. Um, it makes me think of, um, which this is a bit different because it started out, I think, as a job. But in David's family, they had Aunt Catherine. And Aunt Catherine um, was, when David's dad was little, his mom was a single mom from when he was pretty tiny, um, he and his brother. and But she also worked full-time. She was city manager for her city um, in, in Metro Birmingham. So Aunt Catherine came Bruce and his brother's nanny, and she had been a nun before she came to be their nanny. Um, and so she was their nanny the whole time they were kids and but she and but she came came so much part that after they were grown she still stayed as part of their family so that when she was elderly and David's grandma had passed away she lived with family and Catherine lived with David's family because she didn't have family of her own so you know that was the case somebody who wasn't made who was made part of the family um and an adopted aunt I guess you would say um who ended up you know she invested so much time and Bruce and his brother when they were little and then you know then later on in her life they had the chance to to care for her and so it was just this beautiful kind of circularity to the whole thing 
I'm really sad that I never got to meet her. We have an Afghan in the house that she made that she made, and every time I look at it, I'm like, man. But I'll get to meet her in heaven, so it's all right. Oh, that's really beautiful. Yeah, I love I love the idea of um, like you all y'all were saying like intergenerational friendships with kids because kids are great because their brains are so weird like they come up with the most surreal things and they just have such an interesting perspective on stuff and they let you when when you're not like actively trying to get them to do a specific task or to be quiet you know something they let they let you remember what it's like to have that freedom of imagination and i really value the opportunities i have to be that kind of I want to be like, I'm your friend kind of auntie, because I, I do need them to know that uh, I, I represent the authority of their parents when their parents aren't there. You know, I've been, I've been sanctioned, but also not a narc, right? So it's safe to tell me things. And um, it, it jumps out at me is I, so my sister's husband's eldest brother, his daughter, I have no idea how to describe this young young girl's uh, relationship to me. But um, while I am not technically her aunt, she thinks of me as her aunt, and my niece certainly thinks of me as her aunt because they describe me as Auntie Laurie. But um, the, the little girl, uh, she came up to me at, at my, my brother-in-law's birthday this, this past year in, in April and was telling me all about like feeling bullied at school but then also a boy that she kind of likes. And I'm like... <gasps> I get to be in the safe space where you can tell an adult this stuff and you get honest answers, but she knows I'm not going to tell her mom because I have no idea who these kids she is she's talking about. So I'm, she's not going to get embarrassed, but um, they all know that they can tell me important stuff and that the serious things get relayed back to parents, but the embarrassing things that you don't want your mom and your dad to know, Auntie Laurie is, is a safe place to talk about. And, and I just Grinch style my heart through grew threeses that day. It, but it also makes, oh my gosh, it's so exhausting to be a parent. That's really yeah. great that you're that space for, for, yeah, for those little guys, for sure. I think that every time, Laurie, like, it must be so much work, and I much respect, Katie, for you and all other parents, because honestly, the greatest thing about being an aunt is that I get to be safe space and authority figure, but also I get to give them back. Yes! Yes, my kid, my my nibblings have a kind of one now, but because the tradition was when they were eight years old, they got to spend a weekend with Auntie Laurie all by themselves. And the very first time I did it, it was like oh, I've got to keep a kid alive, like and alive, alive the whole time. Like no one's coming. There's no backup. It was very stressful. It's a lot. I mean, yeah, and I mean, I know, like, and it, and it's, it is. You're right. It is different because I have my own kids, but like, I've never scissor nephews for like overnight because we've always lived far away. We haven't done like the sleepover thing. Had charge of you know of Billy's kids for the weekend or whatever. Like, and their mom and dad were gone or whatever. I would be nervous. Everything, and you know, and it's so yeah, absolutely. I totally get it. Oldest on this side of the family niece to her 10th birthday last year because for her big double digit birthday that's what she wanted to do that's is, awesome um is go to a museum and she yeah um she was at the time super into greek mythology um which i went through a greek mythology phase at that age uh too and so she took us all through the museum and like showed us uh all the statues in the classical section of the museum and told me, you know, this is Artemis and this is what she does and this is Athena and this is what she does. And she was so totally into it and, like, it was the greatest thing ever to see her be excited about something she was excited about. But I was also very nervous trying to, you know, make sure she was entertained and also safe overnight and the next day. Like, is she having fun? Has she eaten? Does she have to bathe? When does she bathe? What children do? It's Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. But can can we talk about this article a little bit more? Because yes. there, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that I think we should get into before we talk about our actual reading section. Yeah, I'd love to for you. Um, so I, I liked a lot about it. I feel like it, it validated a lot of my experiences and the kind of difficult um, 
need to expend maternal energy in a way that isn't always recognized by society. Um, but one thing I wanted to talk about that the article seemed to hit on a lot is kind of, um, first let's talk about the acronym. Um, the article coined <laughs> the term. Uh, I didn't love it. I, I, I did not love it, love it either. Uh, and I, so, uh, that was the one thing I didn't like about that article, actually. Yeah. Uh, so the P-A-N-K, the pank, is a professional ant with no kids, um, which, like, people are going to acronym identities. That's fine, I guess. But the thing that kind of bugged me about it is the commercialization or commodification of the acronym. Like, this blog starts out as a community of people and turns into like books and t-shirts and a podcast that you have to pay to listen to and I don't know I it seemed to me to be kind of gross that what started out as like let's empower these people who exist in a sort of liminal social space turned into and they are a market with disposable income that we should therefore claim as a market I don't know. Am I am I being too cynical? No, you're you're not. It is it is gross. And if you've I'm not going to mention the name of the actual blog that came up with that horrible acronym, because um, I don't want to like you know speak ill of the dead. But it's ugly. It, it, the the website is is terrible. And it's like saying that the only way that professional ant no kids the only way women have any role and value is either as a physical mother or as a commodity. buy that i don't buy that at all yeah i see what you're saying well and it's also a weird like uh, the with the professional in there like i'm not sure if it's professional and also ant or professional ant because the that i feel like the word professional has certain like business world connotations you know yeah and so so that kind of acronym to me conjures up the image of some kind of high-powered businesswoman who also has nephews and nieces that like she spends time with when i mean everybody's life looks different and not you know not everybody's like that person either and particularly when you get into then it's this like commodified thing with merch and like i yeah i can i see it might be it does feel a little uncomfortable like why can't can't you just can't we just talk about it and celebrate it and not have to make it into stuff that you could buy yeah, I personally use the phrase professional ante because I do have so many children that I, you know, frankly, play blocks with. But there's something about um, that acronym that screams like, how can I turn yuppie into a new marketing tool? And ooh, no, thank you. To me, it's like coming from the same place. It's like somebody looked around and went, okay, parents buy all these goofy things that say like baby on board. Or, like, shirts that say, like, I'm a wine mom. Like, there's all this merch directed at parents, which also drives me nuts. But it's like somebody went, how can we get in on that? But, like, with ants. You know, that's, that's like, the vibe I get from some of that. Yeah. Untapped market is – that's – that's I don't, I don't want to be anybody's untapped market. I don't want to be anyone's tapped market. I would like to ex- excise myself from capitalism entirely. Thank you very much. But um, I, I'd like the – first part of the article before it gets into that particular blog where they really are talking about how we have we have all of these cultural images of aunts and then in different in in other cultures especially like i when i hear the word auntie i think either an old black woman or an old indian woman um and somebody threatening me with their shoe um but like there are roles for women that are not your mother in all sorts of cultures and it's interesting that a lot of american and western european culture has said well this is what your aunt looks like it looks like you know peter parker's auntie may aunt may or some of the people that we'll talk about later you know these old spinsters and i hate that phrase because man i'd love to learn how to spin wool that would be amazing Laurie, do you know what i just realized for the what? first time I, well, I mean we this is something we noticed before but i never thought about it as like a reflection of the changing stereotypes of ants or whatever so my kids we have a there's a little golden book i don't know if you guys have ever seen it called the new baby and it's been around for probably 75 years 
um, and every like 20 or so years it gets a refresh. So we have three different versions in our house, and in the book, the little boy gets a new baby in his house, like a baby sister or whatever, and his parents leave for the hospital, and his aunt comes to stay with him. Same thing happens in every version of this book. In the first version from, like, 1932, dad is literally, like, smoking a pipe while he's showing the boy the baby bath that has come in the mail. It's hilarious. But in that book, the aunt, even though the mom looks like she's in her late 20s, the aunt is, like maybe supposed to be a great aunt the aunt has gray hair and looks like ma kettle or something she's wearing like an apron um fast forward to the 50s though and i think the aunt is younger i can't remember how much younger the 70s version which is the one that my parents read to me when i was a kid we still have the one the one that my mom and dad bought me when i was two and that one the aunt looks younger than the mom and is like in like hip like cute clothes like she's clearly a young single aunt, so it like evolved over time. And I and I, gosh, I never even thought about that before. Like you can track it, oh, yes. like could through you, the course of the twentieth century. Could you pick a picture that is in all three versions and snap them for us so we can include these in the show notes? I am fascinated by this. Yeah, I'll try to find them. I I, I have to track them down because. I know at least the oldest one is super delicate. We may not actually have it on the shelves. If it's in a box, it would be a little bit tough. But I'll try to see if I can find at least two versions and and take a picture. Yeah, because it, it's amazing. I mean, we, we there's other differences like the dad changes a lot. Like, um, but it but yeah, the aunt is the is what changes the most in all the different versions. And it's I mean, the story is very similar. Very few other things are changed. Most of the words are the same. Most of the baby stuff that comes to the house is the same. But the aunt is the is the kind of factor that changes uh, the most. And so I, I had never really thought about it like that but yeah i'll try to take some pictures uh if i can and then try to get those to you guys tomorrow please do that's amazing um oh i, I forgot the only other thing about the article um that i uh i think the thing that i enjoyed the most was the and i think it was right at the end um was one of the women i think maybe caroline the first one that they had interviewed was she was talking about the chance to be to show her nieces and nephews just a different kind of adult life like, um, you know, because she wasn't made with children and, you know, did a kind of, you know, what someone is a more typical path for, you know, um, you know for the past. Increasingly, that's not true because more and more people are not marrying and having kids. But I thought that was really interesting. And I really liked that because I do think it is important to see adults living lives that don't look exactly like your parents' lives. Um, you know, when I was a kid, this is a really stupid example, but it's the first one that comes to mind. When I was a young person, I loved to watch a different world because they were in college and my parents didn't go to college. And so that was a world I knew nothing about, like nothing. And then I kind of grew up and then, you know, for my younger siblings and maybe later nieces and nephews, like even though I ended up, I didn't, you know, I ended up being like a, a married older sister with kids or whatever. I, they were watching me then go to college, even though our parents didn't do it. And then go to grad school. And so I kind of was able to a little bit be that person who's doing something different than our parents did, right? Um, even though parts of my journey have been exactly the same as my parents with marriage and kids and whatever, other parts have been completely different. And so that was, I got to do a little bit of that, like being a different type of example thing. That's really cool. I thought about like being window to a different world. That was my favorite part of that article, and I, I, I think it was right at the end, and, she's, and, and she might have even used the word transgressive, or, you know, just talked about, you know, or not, or subversive, I can't remember the word she used, but it wasn't, it said in a negative way at all, but just, you know, kind of um, giving, a, giving a different view so that, you know, kids don't come up with the idea that there's only one kind of grown-up or one kind of person you should be. I really like that. I'm going to have to sit with that in my head for a little while before I have, like, deeper thoughts on it so while i ponder it in my heart do you guys think we're ready to transition to um our favorite famous aunties let's share it all right so i'm gonna go first um because it's my prerogative and i have two examples that i kind of want to just throw out there because um for me they are incredibly positive examples but in in like different ways. So um, one is my favorite television aunt, Aunt Viv, original version, please, because uh, it's that dance-off scene where she does the ballet in front of the girls at the hip-hop and impresses everybody. But 
Truly one of my favorite sitcom moments of all time. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I I love that version of, of Aunt Viv. But one of the things I really love about that character is just how completely she brings Will into the family. Like, Will has his, his, his problems with Uncle Phil, but Aunt Viv is all in all the time. So she's this wonderful model for us of, like, both motherhood and aunthood. Um, leave off some of the class issues and definitely the race issues that I don't, I don't know that I'm, I'm necessarily equipped to talk about. But as an aunt, I think Viv is a spectacular model because she's a complex woman and she, she fails, but uh, she is there for not only her own kids, but her, her siblings child as well. And doesn't really judge and tries to, to make Will feel loved and safe and part of family in a weird circumstance. And I think Aunt Viv is a fabulous role model for, for all people. My other aunt, the one that I always think of um, and have talked about on the podcast already is Aunt Jane, Miss Jane Marple, who we are introduced to in, in her, like, first short story by her, her nephew. Like, Jane Marple, master detective, chill knitter, is, is, is always framed as someone's aunt. And I think she kind of embodies the stereotype that we were talking about. Like, Aunt, Aunt Jane is that spinster, is that older lady just sitting in a corner with her outdated clothes on but she's great like everybody loves aunt jane all of her nieces and nephews and she seems to have a i think approximately four million of them across all of all of her stories they all love her they can't get enough of her and i think that's awesome and she's she's real cool about it like she's not super maternal with them um because she's too busy, you know, paying attention to villages and solving dastardly crimes. But all of these kids in her life who grow up to be adults think really highly of her and seek her out, um, which is, I find interesting because she's also she's immediately presented to us as one of the types of figures that society would reject and society would push aside. And Agatha Christie make sure that all of these nibblings in Jane's life are, are solid hype men for her. And that I find awesome. There's a moment too, in uh, one of the 13 problem stories where um, like aunt Jane, aunt Jane obviously knows that her nephew and I think Joyce, the artist are like an item. And, um, and then, but then later I think she, she, Joyce slips and, but they don't know she knows that or something, but mm-hmm. Joyce slips up and calls her Aunt Jane and she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know why I did that. And, and Miss Marple's like, don't you though? <laughs> she like calls her out on it. And then later she tells them that she already knows that they got engaged in the garden before dinner. Like, even though they weren't going to tell her that later. She's like, no, nah, yeah, I already know that. <laughs> That's awesome. Classic. Yeah. I, so for me, those are like the pinnacle of classic anti-paradigms um what what are the ants that jumped out at you immediately that your your go-to maybe not necessarily paradigms in the same way but katie what ants in popular culture really speak to you well the first ones i thought of and so i just went with it are uh, Bertie Wooster's aunts from the P.G. Woodhouse story is about Ber- Jeeves and Wooster. Wooster. Um, I'm never sure how you're supposed to say it if you're American. Um, so he kind of has two, his two aunts are kind of foils for each other. Um, and each one is a kind of archetype. Um, they're both married aunts. They're not unmarried. And they, and they each have at least one child. So um, it's a slightly different uh, version. Also, I realized today, for anybody who's a Pratchett fan, that basically, at least physically, the way his answer described, one is basically Granny Weatherwax, and the other one is basically Nanny Og. That's awesome. Um, so, Aunt, um, i got to get my paper here because I wrote it all down. 
so Aunt Agatha is the mean one. Um, she she's described as um, having like a beaky nose and she's tall for a woman and she's got gray hair and she's very imperious and she's always trying to get him to get married um, to bring more respectability to the family. She pretty much roundly disapproves of Jeeves too, thinks that he's too um, personal with Bertie, that Bertie shouldn't discuss his personal problems with the help. Um, so she's pretty much jerky and the descriptions of her are absolutely hilarious. Um, you know, he describes her as someone who probably does human sacrifices at the weekend and bites the top off of bottles and things. I mean, any, if you've read, listeners, if you've read Wodehouse, you know that these descriptions are over the top. Um, the, her foil is Aunt Dahlia or um, in the everybody's favorite series, um, Hugh Laurie pronounces it Dahlia, Aunt Dahlia. Um, she is the nice one. Um, she's friendly. She seems to love and care for Bertie. Um, they have like a playful banter where they call each other terms of endearment that sound like insults. So he'll call her aged relative or my old ancestor and she'll call him an abysmal chump. That's an exact quote. Um, and uh, they have a much closer, warmer relationship. She's described as short, stout, and red-faced, <laughs> like Nanny Og. And I, one of the things I found most interesting is I never knew before today. I'd read the books, um, but I didn't know until I was researching today that the two aunts, Bertie's two aunts, are based on two of Wodehouse's aunts because apparently P.G. Wodehouse spent most of his childhood with various aunts and uncles because his parents were always in Hong Kong. So Wodehouse, I guess, had a front row seat to uncle behavior when he was a kid. And so his mother's oldest sister is the one that Anna Agatha is based on. And then the nice one, uh, Aunt Delia, is based on one of his mother's other sisters. Um, and so I just find that fascinating. And uh, they're, they're, they're nice because you don't ever really see them play off of each other. Um, I think one's supposed to be his mother's or his dad's sister, and the other one maybe is on the other side of the family. But um, they, uh, they're just really good foils because you get to see him have two different relationships with, you know, it's kind of two stereotypical aunt relationships. There's the imperious aunt who, kind of like Aunt March and Little Women, who kind of scares you and um, is kind of harsh. And then there's the aunt who's warm and inviting and loving. And so you get to see the same guy kind of play off both of those two different types of personalities. Um, and I mean, it, and it's not always perfect. Um, on, among other things, Aunt Delia is really nice, but she's also not above blackmail or stealing stuff if she's trying to achieve a goal um, or asking Bertie to steal stuff, which happens. Uh, she tries to rope him into some shenanigans in the very last novel that Woodhouse ever wrote. The title of it is Aunts Aren't Gentlemen. And she tries to rope him into a scheme to rig a horse race that she has bet on. So that's, you know. She kinda sounds like my kind of woman. <laughs> I know. Right now I want to go read that book. So those were the two that I thought of um, because they're, um, yeah. I, 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 and the only other thing I thought of, and I didn't put this in the notes, but um, one of my, maybe, I'm not going to say my favorite novel. That's way too exclusive. One of my top three novels is Dorothy Sayers' Gaudy Night. And in that novel, you get to see Lord Peter Whimsey's nephew basically adopt Harriet Vane as an aunt before they're ever even together. Um, and he talks about how he's antless for all practical purposes because his mother's sisters are, I think he says, the original Gorgons or something. And so he kind of like gloms onto her and adopts her as like a younger, more sympathetic aunt when she's not part of his family yet. And that's kind of fun, too. So that's the other thing I thought of. Those are those are amazing, and also those are so intensely Katie as uh, as reference points. I love it. Okay, so I presented two paragons of virtue, and Katie has presented two poles of very, very different anti-experience. Victoria, I happen to know which ones you've picked, but I saved you for last because there's some really interesting extreme examples that you've got for us. So, uh... Who are your favorite famous aunts? Uh, okay, so favorite is maybe not the right word, um, but <laughs> I, I have I have picked uh, two very different uh, examples of kind of incompetent <laughs> aunthood. Um, so first, I want to talk about Aunt Polly uh, from. Uh, she appears in, in Huck Finn, too, but she is um, primarily in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. She is Tom's aunt, um, and Sid, too, uh, his, his brother. And because Tom and Sid's mother dies, Aunt Polly raises them. And poor woman, um, she's just really out of her depth. 
with these two boys. Uh, she is well-meaning but can't really manage them. Um, she knows that Tom is not a very good boy. He doesn't follow the rules. Um, one of my favorite quotes of hers, she calls Tom full of old scratch the devil, but says that she can't really punish him because um, every time uh, she tries to spank him, she doesn't have the heart, but every time she lets him off, her conscience hurts her. Um, so she's really just kind of uh, between a rock and a hard place, disciplining him, but she does love him. She cares for him a lot. Um, but she's more of an idea than a person, really, even though she's kind of a good person. Um, she's really associated with uh, the idea of civilization with an S that shows up both in Tom Sawyer and in Huck Finn. Um, the kind of the idea of the town as opposed to the idea of, um, like, the frontier, the the lighting out for the territories ahead of the rest um, that we're told that Huck Finn eventually does. So she's just kind of this idea of goodness and properness, um, even though as a person she's just trying to to do her best to to raise these boys that are kind of wild. So that's a kind of benign incompetence. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, a, a, a truly uh, truly evil incompetence, who is in some ways also trying her best. Um, I, I want to talk about Aunt Lydia from um, the Margaret Atwood novel, The Handmaid's Tale, and its sequel, The Testaments. So as soon as you proposed this episode, Laurie, I knew I wanted to talk about Aunt Lydia because I I just have so many emotions about her. Um I think she is the most interesting character in Atwood's original novel, um, and that the television show has made her even more interesting. Um, in the novel, she is just this picture of evil. Um, she performs a lot of tropes of maiden aunthood. Um, she gives direction. She leads Bible studies. She calls... Uh, the handmaids in the red center, her girls. Um, but she also does things like beat them and discipline them with uh, an electrified cattle prod when they don't conform to Gilead's norms. So uh, that's not nurturing behavior, but it is to her because she is trying to uphold uh, virtue in this totalitarian society. Um, I don't want to talk too much about the TV show, but I, I will say, um, if you haven't watched it, if you would like to, um, Anne Dowd's performance uh, of Aunt Lydia is definitely worth the price of admission. Um, and one more thing I want to say is, uh, in the sequel to Handmaid's Tale, The Testaments, uh, we find out, spoilers, spoilers ahead, um, that Aunt Lydia in fact, is the chief architect of taking Gilead down from the inside out. She is kind of the leader of the resistance uh, inside the school of the wives and uh, succeeds in getting lots of people out of that oppressive regime after realizing that um, she has brought a lot of pain and oppression into the world um, in order to, you know, save her own skin and, and be in the upper echelons of this totalitarian government in order to not uh, fall victim to it. She regrets that, and she takes it down from the inside. Wow. I've, I've not read the Testaments, so uh, we're going to have to talk about that later, but, like, you and me. But that is amazing. Like, I, I had no idea that Aunt Lydia had a conscience a, it's a fantastic um, character development, and um, yeah, maybe we can, you and I can definitely talk about that later, but maybe we can do uh, an episode on the Testaments sometime next year. Oh, that would be really cool. Like, I want to tell you guys, I've had such a good time talking with y'all about this stuff tonight, um, but finishing with Aunt Lydia feels like a downer. So let's do a lightning round of um, your personal goals as aunties, right? Okay. I'll let you guys think about it. So I'll go first. Some of my personal goals as an auntie, professional and biological, are I want 
my, one of my nibblings to tell me the name of the person that they have a crush on and then that I remember it. My eldest nibbling has told me many different girls' names, mostly because he knows I forget immediately and they're all like Madison or something. But that is one of my goals, and I'm working on it, is to remember the name at some point of one of my nibbling's crushes. Life goal. I like that a lot. I like that as a goal. Honestly, probably they were all named Madison. It was just spelled differently every time, <laughs> which is maybe why you can't remember <laughs> Okay, check that off my bucket list already. All right, Katie, do you have... Any anti-goals? Yeah. Um, I, be, we live, because we live close enough now for me to be able to spend, to, this is now an actually potentially reachable goal. My goal would be in the future to try to form more kind of individual relationships um, with my nieces and nephews. Because we're, we've always been so far away, we've always seen them in groups at the holidays at like big parties. There's just not time, you know, if we're coming in from Texas or Kansas or all the different places we lived. But now it's, in theory, possible that I could spend some individual time and try to actually get to know them more on an individual level. So that, I would say that's that's a goal of mine for the future. That's a really lovely goal. Victoria, do you have one? I do. Um, and thank you for asking this question, because I feel like you're making me verbalize something in a way that is probably going to make me be more likely to commit to it. Oh, you're so welcome. I, so I think this is a good thing. Um, I mentioned that we live closer to two of our nieces um, and that they are very different personalities. Uh, so because they are very different personalities, I am closer to the one who is older and um, and more like me, frankly. Um, she is kind of more introverted, and she's an artist, and we talk about that. Um, but I am not as close to her very extroverted younger sister. And I want to put more effort into that relationship. I want to, you know, listen to her more and be goofy with her and kind of put more effort into um, just pouring into her a little bit more. So that's my goal. That's, that's really so nice. Great. Oh, you guys are so great. Okay, so I'm going to wrap us up now and move into our passing on. Katie, what would you like her to, rec to recommend for our listeners? Well, so I'm actually going to recommend a P.G. Woodhouse book since I talked about it earlier. So the one I'm recommending is um, the hilarious Right Ho Jeeves. Um, which is um, probably one of the best ones for uh, getting to see Bree's relationship with his nice aunt. Um, that my favorite part of that entire book is when she she orders him to come out to the countryside to be the person who hands out prizes at some kind of country fete for the children or something, and he doesn't want to go, so he sends a friend instead. And there's this series of telegrams that she sends him that are absolutely top-notch comedy um, of her uh, alternately insulting him and uh, and also telling that he needs to come, that he has to come, and then signing it, Love uh, Travers, which is her last name. She signs her telegrams to him, Love Travers. But the first one of those telegrams starts out, am taking legal advice to ascertain whether strangling an idiot nephew counts as murder. If it doesn't, look out for yourself. <laughs> That is so great. And this is his aunt who loves him. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah. So, check out Right Ho Jeeves. It's a, it's a great, good time. And if you've never read any Wodehouse, it doesn't matter. You'll still have fun. Awesome. All right, Victoria, what do you got for us? Um, I'm just going to recommend that everybody read The Testaments because uh, I, I love a redemption arc. And Aunt Lydia really does um, prove her humanity and redeem herself, and sorry that I am telling you to read something that I already spoiled for everyone, uh, but it's still a pretty good novel. I can promise you I would not have read it of us, because I, I don't need to spend any more time in Gilead, thank you. But seeing, knowing, knowing that um, the boogeyman has a change of heart uh, means you've already changed my heart, Victoria. Good to know. Happy okay. to help. All right. I'm going to recommend something that I have not talked about at all in this episode because I couldn't quite figure out how to work it in. I really want to mention it. It's two 
worst ants in all of literature, if you ask me. That is Ant Spiker and Ant Sponge from James and the Giant Peach. Um, they are dastardly and delightful, and um, anytime I get an opportunity to recommend Roald Dahl, I will, because and James and the Giant Peach is one of my favorites. It's so weird, and Spiker and Sponge are so awful. But they're, they're the so, worst. They're so iconic, too. That book gave me nightmares when I was a kid. And when I tell that to people, they're like, oh, it's because of the bugs, right? No, no. totally because of the ants, because they're so scary. Yeah. It makes me glad I never read it as a kid. I Like, I enjoyed the movie, but I didn't read the book as a kid. And I think it's probably good that I didn't because I I was and am easily scared. <laughs> so I don't know that I would have enjoyed it. Matilda was enough for me with the mean grownups. Yeah, that is that is sort of Doll's signature. Adults, don't trust them. Um, well, thank you all for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Katie Grubbs and Victoria Reynolds Farmer, I'm Laurie Norris. Tune in in two weeks from now. Yeah, that's, that's the way I wanted to say that. Tune in two weeks from now as we discuss George Eliot's Middlemarch. Until then. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love.